history lesson. Um, I think it's really important that we understand the history of the 1689 London Baptist Confession before we actually jump into uh, dealing with the doctrine that it lays out. Um, And any confession you study, it's very important to place it within its historical context because many of the statements that are made in the confession can only be understood in their historical context, just like we do Bible interpretation. As you read the Bible, as we've already discussed in the past weeks, we want to know the historical context. Well, just the same with the confession of faith. We need to know the historical context in order to understand what we're reading or we get the wrong ideas of what's being communicated. I'll give you two examples Uh, One of them is uh, chapter 26 in paragraph 4 of our confession, the one that raises the most questions among people who read it. Uh, It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Here it is. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Very strong statement um, stating that the Pope is the Antichrist that the Bible speaks of. Well, let's consider the historical context in the 1600s. This is a reformational document. They're dealing uh, directly with the false teaching of... um, of Rome, and uh, and so the f- those who wrote the Confession of Faith were very um, uh, were very convinced that uh, the Pope of the time was the Antichrist. Um, so we would probably only uh, I know I, I'm comfortable with only changing really one word and all of that, and it uh, and it is st- an accurate statement. Instead of saying this, it, it, it is um, that the Pope is that Antichrist or the Antichrist, I would certainly say that the Pope is an Antichrist, um, a man of sin, a son of perdition that exalts himself against the Church of Christ um, and all that is called God. Um, I, I have no problem stating that. I believe that's true. Uh, but to say he is the Antichrist is, um, is not accurate, obviously. Um, so, again, it's important, though, to understand that within its historical confines. Another example, chapter 22 and paragraph 8 on uh, the Lord's Day um, and Sabbath observance. It says, The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and um, ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts, and their worldly employments and recreations, that's the point I want to focus on, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercise of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Well, when they were writing the Confession of Faith, um, they dealt specifically with this thing of recreations on the Lord's Day. Um, So when we read that in our context, we would think that the confession is saying that we're forbidden from going in our backyard and kicking around a ball or throwing the baseball with our kids on the Lord's Day, uh, that that is sinful and not uh, keeping the Sabbath holy. Uh, But what was really going on, and we'll deal with this more when we get to chapter 22, um, but in London in their day, uh, because the Protestants were holding to the Lord's Day, they were holding Sabbath observance, um, that the government... um, issued a, uh, a statement that um, any uh, recreational games, activities, whatever, that were to take place in competition were to happen on Sundays. Um, so they were trying to uh, undermine the authority of the church in the lives of the people um, so that they could um, flex their own muscles and authority. Um, so it's dealing specifically with something within their historical context. And so the writers of the Confession said, we reject what the government is saying here. We will hold to the Lord's Day. So, again, there's a principle there to be applied for us um, in terms of um, competition and those sorts of things uh, in observing the Sabbath. But nevertheless, um, that is what that is referring to specifically.
Uh, there's various references through the confession that oppose the teachings of Roman Catholicism um, and the established religion of uh, the crown and parliament at the time. So you're dealing with uh, Anglicanism in its earliest forms, uh, the Church of England, uh, also the Church of Scotland, and we'll talk about that a bit um, in its relationship to Presbyterianism. So as we read the Confession, you're going to see these things come up. And we have to understand um, also as they're setting themselves apart from other streams of Baptist believers and uh, the specific statements that are made in regards to that. Um, now, if you notice, if you've ever taken notice, uh, our confession is called the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which implies what? There's a first. Very good. <laughs> Got some geniuses here. Uh, Adam Cave came, came quick with that one. He was on it. Proud of you. Um, we hold to the second confession. So we have to understand something about the first and why a second was drafted. Um, there's also various streams of Baptist identity that are radically different on several points that we need to think about. Um, Often, even now, as people kind of do church history and specifically Baptist history, they kind of mingle all of these together. They're very, very different. So we have to understand the differences. Um, and then we'll see, uh, even then, they were um, um, mingling them together and confusing everyone else. Um, before I go, Sam, can you do me a favor? And on that back table, there's the, the spiral-bound book called True Confessions. Can you grab that? I need to read something out of there in just a moment. Thank you. Um, so we're going to look at the three streams of Baptist identity in the 1600s. We're also going to see what was going on among the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. And we're going to try and cover all of those um, this evening. So um, all of this played a very significant role in the formulation of the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, it sounds like a lot. Uh, thank you. But... Um, it won't be as confusing as it sounds once we dig in. So we will begin with, um, with the stream of Baptists that we come from um, who are called the Particular Baptists. Particular Baptists. Now, they're called Particular because of their doctrinal um, conviction of particular or limited atonement as opposed to general or universal atonement. So um, they were distinguished by the idea that Christ died for his people, for the church, and not for anyone, uh, for everyone, everywhere. That Jesus died for a specific people, and when he said, it is finished, he meant it. Um, that he died completely and finally for all who would be his children, past, present, and future. Um, so this issue in itself... Atonement and who Christ died for, it was and it still very much is a very significant dividing line among Baptists. Um, these were the Calvinistic Baptists um, of England in the 1630s and 1640s. They came from, uh, they came out of the Church of England. They were commonly referred to as dissenters or separatists. There was a whole movement of people who came out of the Church of England were called separatists. They were separating themselves. They were dissenting from the teaching of the Church of England. Um, and the particular Baptists were just one uh, group among uh, several. Um, their early existence was full of repeated cycles of government-sanctioned persecution because they were dissenting from what was then um, the state religion. Um, so that's the particular Baptist, and we'll get back to them, but I just want to give you a, a brief overview of each of the groups before we uh, dive into more specific areas. The second is the general Baptist. So we talked about particular, now general again the issue was atonement here um, they believed in general or universal atonement that jesus died for everyone everywhere so what's implied there is that um, there is a uh, an arminian bent to what they believed uh, that man was responsible for his salvation ultimately uh, they held to the basic teaching of Arminianism. Um, they only had minimal, very nuances between the various General Baptist churches 
um, that would have differed from Arminianism. Um, again, they were part of the separatist movement. Um, they had, uh, they, the General Baptist formed the first confession, Baptist Confession of Faith in 1611. What else came out in 1611? Yes, the King James Version of the Bible. Um, so that same year, the General Baptist um, came out with what was called a Declaration of Faith of English People. So here were there, and as you hear some of these, and you're familiar with uh, various doctrines, um, you, will, you will hear the differences here. Um, some of them we would agree with, and some of them we wouldn't. They held to believers' baptism which we certainly agree with, um, they held to a very strict closed communion, meaning you had to be a member of that church in order to partake of communion with the people who were there. They were trying to keep people from uh, also still being a part of uh, the Church of England. They didn't want people who were wishy-washy going back and forth so that they weren't being persecuted. So if you weren't a member of the General Baptist Church, you weren't going to take communion with them. They had a very strong belief in synergism. In other words, the idea that man and God are both involved in man's salvation. General atonement. Uh, The General Baptists believed that you could fall from grace. In other words, that you could be a believer and then lose your salvation. Very common teaching in Arminianism. Uh, They were non-covenantal. They believed in very small autonomous churches. They were congregational in their government. Uh, They had elders and deacons, both men and women. Um, so this was the General Baptists. Um, General Baptists today are very, very liberal um, in America. Um, the same stream there. The third group was called the Anabaptists. Uh, this was a spinoff from something that was called the Radical Reformation. Uh, a bit earlier than others, um, this happened uh, in the 16th century, in the 1500s. Um, they sought to address what they thought was corrupt in Roman Catholicism, just like all of the other reformers were doing at the time. Um, but they also thought that there was a great error and corruption in the Protestant Reformation. So the Roman Catholics were wrong, but also um, Martin Luther and all who were with him in the Protestant Reformation were wrong. So the Anabaptists spun off. Um, so they were persecuted not only by the Roman Catholic Church, but they were also persecuted by many of the uh, Protestant groups that saw the Anabaptists, uh, the Radical Reformation movement, as a direct assault against what they were trying to do. Um, So they opposed several of the main tenets of the Reformation, and became uh, this became the root of several radical groups that spun off from there, uh, that materialized, um, that we even see today, such as the Mennonites and the Amish, um, and uh, if you know anything of the, um, the history of John Calvin, a uh, man that, uh, whose name comes up often with John Calvin is, um, is Servetus. Servetus was a man who was burned at the stake, and uh, it's believed that John Calvin had a lot to do with that. Um, he was an Anabaptist. Um, so specific uh, to them and their doctrines and what they, they taught. Um, they rejected a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. In other words, um, there was no such thing as an invisible church. In other words, that there would be uh, believers out there who weren't um, yet part of the local church or, uh, in their mind, only people who had been baptized as believers were considered the true church. So if you, were, if you had convictions as a Presbyterian, say they would say you hadn't been truly baptized and therefore you couldn't be a Christian. The implication there, of course, is baptismal regeneration, that you're not truly saved until you've been baptized by immersion under the water in an Anabaptist church. Um, Some of the primitive Baptists have that mentality today, um, sadly, but uh, that that certainly was um, out of the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, They rejected... This idea, what was, what was the primary doctrine of the Reformation? Okay, the sort of um, out of Sola Scriptura, what was the, the singular doctrine that they were focused on? Justification by faith, right? 
Well, the Anabaptists rejected that because they said that it led to antinomianism. Well, that's what Paul was being, um, he was being accused of in Romans, right? When he said, all these people are coming to Paul saying, if what you're saying is true, that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, then we should go out and sin all the more that grace may abound. And Paul says, by no means. Well, the Anabaptists um, didn't quite understand that part of Romans, I guess. And they decided that justification by faith could not possibly be true because then it would mean God's law had no meaning whatsoever. So what's the implications of that? If no justification by faith, then what? By works, exactly. Um, So they were justified by works. And you see that even today in Mennonite and Amish traditions. And the Amish specifically, if you read their confessions of faith, um, it is all based very strongly on works, works of uh, piety and holiness, and the very reason why you see them in um, isolated groups and that have nothing to do with the world and the separations from the world and all these things. Um, they were very strict memorialists with regards to the Lord's Supper. In other words, they believed that the Lord's Supper was only a symbol to be observed and you're seeing something that represents something else has no other implications whatsoever. Our confession is not memorialist, uh, that we believe there is a, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're participating with Christ. There's a spiritual transaction that's taking place in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's not simply a memorial. There's more to it than that. It's a means of God's grace to us. Um, I know I'm covering a lot here. We'll get into all these specific things as we go through the confession. But... um, The Anabaptists believed that Christians were to have nothing to do whatsoever with any form of government, military, or anything at all. That you couldn't possibly be a Christian and serve in the military or have any form of office to hold in the government. Uh, You shouldn't vote. You shouldn't do any of this. And as a result, they were uh, complete, total pacifists. That they believed that um, a Christian could never... never, uh, hold a weapon against another man uh, for any reason, which if you understand the Ten Commandments as we went through, um, that um, the flip side to not killing is also protecting life. And uh, we see very clear indications in the scriptures of of the Old Testament, the application of that, that when we're protecting our uh, our home and our family, that we're called to that very thing. Um, So uh, they were very strict pacifists and still are in the Amish and Mennonite communities. Um, And the uh, Anabaptists uh, believe that Christians should live in small separatist communities for the good of personal and familial holiness. And again, we see that very clearly in the Amish communities. So these are the three streams of Baptists in the time. There's the particular Baptists, the general Baptists, and the Anabaptists. Now, when the general and particular Baptists began uh, began to become known as who they were, everyone assumed that they were Anabaptists. They just kind of lumped them all together. And because the Anabaptists were so different and so outspoken, um, they just kind of lumped all of them under that category. So, in 1644, we see the first London Confession, and it was developed by the particular Baptists of 1644. It was a product of political and religious upheaval, and it was an attempt by seven small and relatively new churches uh, to calm fears regarding concerns about what their doctrines were and what their intentions were. Remember, the Anabaptists were trying to, uh, to overthrow even what was going on in the Reformation. So the particular Baptists were saying, hold on a second, we're not there. We agree with most of what you're saying there's only a few items of correction. So they needed to clarify that and uh, before they endured much more persecution. And so um, the formation of the First London Confession. Uh, religious toleration of the day was nearly unheard of. Um, so the idea was uh, that um, as soon as they presented themselves as a Baptist church, uh, that the civil magistrate was going to take action against them. 
So they wanted to shut that down. Uh, the particular Baptists thought the best course was to convince their opponents that there was overwhelming uh, doctrinal agreement on primary issues of concern, and so they produced their confession of faith. Uh, even so, the first edition encountered some opposition in 1644, um, so they produced another one two years later in 1646. So there's a few notable things uh, with regard to the first London Confession. Um, and I just want to point this out. I have this on the back table. And if you get really interested in some of these various confessions, this is called True Confessions. Um, and it's taken several of the uh, various Reformed confessions, um, the First London Confession, um, the uh, Second London Confession, uh, we'll talk about Westminster, Savoy Declaration, all of these, and they're kind of placed side by side. So you can see where they differ, where they're the same, why changes were made. And it's really fascinating as you trace all of that to see where some of these things end up. And we'll talk about that specifically. Um, There are a few notable things about the first London Confession. Um, it It starts like this. Here's the introduction. A confession of faith of seven congregations or churches of Christ in London which are commonly but unjustly called Anabaptists, published for the vindication of the truth and information of the ignorant, likewise for the taking off those aspirations which are frequently both in pulpit and print unjustly cast upon them, printed in London, 1646. So you see, in the very introduction of what... um, They were saying they're opposing uh, this idea that they're Anabaptists and that they're trying to overthrow uh, what's going on. They're saying, the stuff you're printing about us and preaching from your pulpits is not true. That's not who we are. So we're going to clarify that for you. Um, Also implied throughout the First London Confession is an opposition to the Arminianism of the General Baptists. And they're very clear on that as you read through it. Um, they wanted to make certain that everyone knew they were Reformed, they were Calvinistic in persuasion, um, and with only a few exceptions, those having to do with, um, with baptism, church government, and the church's involvement with the state. Um, the Anabaptists, again, they denied the institution of government. At best, they saw it as a necessary evil that Christians should have nothing to do with whatsoever. So those are the three streams of Baptist life in the 1600s. But we can't understand all of that without also looking at what was going on in Presbyterianism as well as Congregationalism also in the 1600s. Uh, During the time period of the formation of the first London Confession by the particular Baptists, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland was meeting over several years to develop the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was approved in 1647 by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Uh, They met several times since uh, 1643. Um, So... We have particular Baptists doing their thing. We have the Presbyterians doing theirs, all going on at the same time. Why were the Baptists persecuted and the Presbyterians not? Does anyone know? Okay, in part, but who... uh, We're talking in Scotland now. Who... uh, What was going on in Scotland in terms of the uh, authority of the church? The Church of Scotland is the Presbyterian Church. (laughs) So they had the authority. I point this out to show you that any time we move to a state-sponsored religion, this is what you see happen every single time. They take the authority. They enforce and demand that their, uh, whatever their doctrinal distinctives are, um, be held to by all the people. And when they don't, they're persecuted for it. So... Um, many of the particular Baptists were being persecuted because they disagreed on these very, um, at the time, in light of everything else going on, it was pretty minor, their disagreement in regards to baptism. Well, the Church of Scotland wasn't having any of it. Um, So um, 
you see a much larger gathering of Presbyterians coming together, meeting freely to come up with the Westminster Confession. Uh, the Baptists were really struggling through all of that, enduring much persecution uh, through it as they, uh, as they were preparing it. Uh, during this time, you see uh, men like John Bunyan was one who was very much involved in the First London Confession. Um, and we know, uh, many of you know of the persecution he endured. So here's what we read at the opening of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and this is why the Baptists were so clear in regards to their understanding of the church's involvement with the state and state religion. Here's what the beginning of the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Agreed upon by the Assembly of Divines at Westminster, examined and approved 1647 by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and ratified by Acts of Parliament, 1649 and 1690. So the ratifications of the Westminster Confession weren't even done by the church. It was Parliament who did it. Uh, They had complete control over the church. So the Westminster Confession of Faith was the official doctrinal statement of the Church of Scotland, and it was in the hands of Parliament to ratify, to enforce, and on down that road. Um, So the Presbyterians, though... They had some early leadership, and they were very, very godly men, men like John Knox and Thomas Manton. If you read much Puritan literature, you see their names come up very frequently. Um, The Westminster is, for the most part, an excellent confession of faith, and it's still held today by most conservative Presbyterians. Presbyterian Church of America, uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, all of these still hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So... Um, regardless of the fact that it was uh, part of the Church of Scotland, it was very good. We're just very thankful that um, the Church of Scotland happened to be conservative, reformed uh, believers. So that was going on in Presbyterianism. The Congregationalists. There were other men who were in substantial agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith. But they rejected certain elements of Presbyterian, uh, mainly church order and government. Now, if you know anything about Presbyterian church order and government, there's a hierarchy that's established. So there's a session, and that's your local church elders, and then uh, and then it it moves on from there. Um, That there's a from the session, there's a Presbyterian. That's all of the all of the local Presbyterian churches. Um, form the presbytery. And so those uh, pastors of those churches convene regularly and they, uh, they make decisions in regards to the churches there. And it grows out from there. So there's a hierarchy. The Congregationalists rejected that and they insisted on the independence of each local congregation just like the Baptists were doing. Um, they also rejected the idea of the state church and they approached it from the idea of religious freedom that if we are going to be people who are um, a people of the scriptures, like our confession says that we are, uh, then we need to have religious freedom and not have the state telling us what we have to believe or we're going to be persecuted. Um, So, so far, so good with the Congregationalists and the Baptists. Um, This led to the formation of the Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order. It was only a very modest revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Savoy was established in 1658, which is 11 years after the Westminster Confession. Um, Mainly, there were six Puritans of congregational persuasion. Among them were men like John Owen, who was, I think, undoubtedly the most brilliant of all of the Puritans. Um, If you ever get your hands on anything he's written... Uh, you take your time, it's very difficult, but some of the greatest uh, writings uh, that we have available from any of, uh, any of the Christians over the last several hundred years. Um, so John Owen was a Congregationalist as well as Thomas Goodwin. Um, interestingly, Goodwin was a signer of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, so it's widely believed that several of the men who worked on the Westminster... Uh, were really congregationalists at heart. Uh, But they held to the wider body of the Westminster Confession, so they signed it for the greater good of the the cause of promoting uh, true faith and practice. Um, 
Now here's where the Congregationalists get a bit inconsistent. They insisted upon a personal profession of faith in order for one to be a member of the church. And yet, they continued to practice the baptism of infants. doesn't make any sense. Generally, it's one way or the other. Now, this to me, historically, shows if you spend some time studying the development, and we'll get more into this as we talk about baptism, but if you study the development of Protestant Reformed confessions of faith and the, the streams of belief that came from the Reformation, um, you really begin to see that paedo-baptism, the baptism of infants, was, as well as several other doctrines, a holdover from the early reformers' Roman Catholic beliefs. And that's maybe a bold statement. If I told some of my Presbyterian brothers that, they would seek to reject that. But historically, as you look at it, it seems undeniable. Um, For example, Martin Luther, noted as the forerunner of the Reformation, he only made very slight adjustments to various Roman Catholic teachings and fully accepted several things that we would outright reject today. For example, Roman Catholicism was teaching in the Lord's Supper the idea of transubstantiation, that the bread became the body of Christ, the actual body of Jesus. The wine became his blood. And so when the priest blessed it, it magically turned into the body and blood of Christ and uh, so you got all these um, false worship um, uh, ideas like adoration where someone would come and sit and stare at the bread and wine because it was turning into Christ. Um, so that was the teaching of Rome at the time. Well, Martin Luther was shifting away from that. He didn't see that in the scriptures. Um, but he, he developed uh, the, um, the idea of what is called consubstantiation. That it's not until you actually ingest the bread and wine that it becomes the body and blood of Christ. It doesn't do it there on the altar. It's after you ingest it. Um, So you see, Martin Luther was making steps toward Reformation. But he was never there completely. Um, That continued to come. As the Reformation progressed, you begin to see reforming further and further away from Rome and closer and closer to the Scriptures. Uh, it was in line with the Reformed view of sola scriptura and um, scripture alone and the uh, kind of the thing you hear all the time about the Reformation and that we would say today, semper reformanda, always reforming. There's always this progression of uh, coming closer and closer to what the Bible teaches. So I think as you look at that and you look at the Congregationalists and where they were and I know it's because I'm a Baptist, but um, you start to see that as the church moves away from paedo-baptism, they're moving further and further away from Rome. I believe closer and closer to what the Bible's teaching. And that happens to be, along with church government, two things that Presbyterianism never shook, that they still hold to today, um, that are holdovers from Roman Catholicism. Enough on that. We'll talk about it as we get to it in the confession. So the particular Baptists and the Congregationalists were very similar in many, many ways, but they differed on the proper recipients and the proper mode of baptism. So all of this leads to the second London Confession of 1677 and its revision, uh, really republication. There's no major changes uh, of what we hold to today of 1689. Now, as I've studied this a little bit more, one of my leading questions has been this. Why did the particular Baptists of the late 1600s insist on a second confession and not simply hold to the first London Confession of 1646? Um, I think there's several reasons, but I want to point out at least three main ideas that seem to be more clear than perhaps some of the others that could be presented. The first is this. The framers of the second London Baptist Confession uh, very clearly did not place any kind of emphasis whatsoever on originality. 
The London Baptist Confession is largely based upon, and what you would see in this book, it's largely based upon the writing of uh, the text of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Although, I would argue, now this is, uh, Baptist historians debate this, I would argue that the writers of London Baptist Confession probably relied primarily, or at least mostly primarily, on um, the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists as opposed to the Westminster Confession. Nevertheless, they're all very, very similar. This is something that lines them up next to each other. So the first confession of faith, remember, was written during the same time as the Westminster. They didn't have that to look at. So it was very unique in its day. Um, But since the Westminster Confession of Faith became the official confession of the Church of Scotland, which was the church of the government, it was important for the particular Baptists to identify their similarity with them. So their intent was not to show how different they were, but in fact quite the opposite, to show how similar they were uh, in most areas of belief. They wanted to show their unity with their Reformed and Puritan brothers. And so the 1677 uh, London Baptist Confession opened with the statement that the purpose was to show, and uh, it's, quote this, our hearty agreement with Presbyterians and Congregationalists in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which, with so clear evidence of scriptures, they have asserted. They had every desire in the world to show that they were uh, unified with them. And by this time, they were mostly identified separate from the Anabaptists, so they shook that with their first confession. Uh, But they stood, and they also stood in very clear contrast with the general Baptists because of their holding to particular atonement. But they wanted to show their unity, That was one reason for the Second London Confession. Secondly, I think maybe this is a minor point, but the First London Baptist Confession did not cover near the breadth of doctrine that the Second Confession does. Uh, The first publication was anonymous, uh, of the Second London Baptist Confession was anonymous in 1677 because of persecution. But it, uh, it was much wider in scope than the First Confession. Now remember, the first one was written to identify them as separate from whom? The Anabaptists, right? Okay. Now they're not, they're not going that route anymore. They've already established that. They've already worked that out. They're already being identified separate from them. Uh, so the second London Confession is going in an opposite direction to identify their unity. Um, but all of this to say that they covered... In order to do that, they covered a much wider breadth of doctrine. Um, and they adhered, yet they still adhered to their differences with much grace and humility as you read through it. Uh, thirdly, I think this is probably most important in relationship between the first and second uh, London Confessions. The second London Baptist Confession strongly emphasizes the moral law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, as a rule of life for the believer. If you recall back to when we talked about the law, this is the third use of the law, that as Christians we turn to the moral law of God for our sanctification. Um, This was the teaching of the Westminster Confession. This was the teaching of the Savoy Declaration, almost identical statements in all three of these confessions. In the first London Confession, the stress is upon new covenant commands or what they very intentionally referred to as the law of Christ. Historically, Reformed believers do not make a distinction between the moral law of God and the law of Christ. It seems clear in the biblical text that they are one and the same. Jesus is merely uh, clarifying the law's application because the people were, um, were misunderstanding it so, uh, so much, uh, particularly with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Um, they were merely adhering to an outward conformity to the law, where Jesus brought it back to understand that the issue is the heart. Um, so the first confession um, simply focused on the law of Christ. It did not address the moral law of God. And, 
many, uh, maybe not all, but many of the adherents of the first confession would have argued that those things um, not identified in the New Testament by Christ as necessary for a moral Christian life are not binding on the believer. Uh, Really, mainly, that comes down to the fourth commandment and whether or not Christians are called to hold to the Lord's day. Um, It also deals with the level of severity to which one holds to the moral law. In other words, how strict are we with ourselves and with others in obedience to God's law? There's a major distinction between the two confessions in that area. Now, today there are a group of Calvinistic Baptists who call themselves um, those who adhere to New Covenant theology, as opposed to what we call ourselves, that we believe in covenant theology. We'll get into all of what that means exactly, but most of the time you will see them rejecting the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and holding to the First London Confession or... Uh, what was called the New Hampshire Confession. Uh, When we get into the law of God and discussion on the Sabbath, we're going to look more intently at the New Covenant versus Covenant theology. Um, But New Covenant theology uh, essentially rejects the use of the Old Testament in the life of Christians today. Um, And so that's a major distinction you see. I think the primary reason why we see so much difference between the second and first Uh, confessions. Um, Now, in 1677, as I said, it was initially published anonymously, but after what was called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, it was republished in 1689 with the following statement in the preface. And if you you have a copy of the confession, um, this is uh, in that, and you you can read this in there. This is in the introduction, or the preface, I'm sorry. We, the ministers and messengers of and concern for upwards of 100 baptized congregations in England and Wales, denying Arminianism, being met together in London from the 3rd of the 7th month to the 11th of the same, 1689, to consider of some things that might be for the glory of God and the good of these congregations have, have thought meet for the satisfaction of all other Christians that differ from us in the point of baptism to recommend to their perusal the confession of our faith, which confession we own, and containing the doctrine of our faith and practice, and do desire that the members of our churches respectfully do furnish themselves therewith. And it's followed by the names of 37 pastors who signed it. Very distinct from the second confession of 1677, which had no names tied to it whatsoever. Now, all of this came about because of what's called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. And if you don't know, that was the overthrow of King James II by the Dutch fleet and army that was led by William of Orange. He took the throne as William III. Who knows who his wife was? Mary II, William and Mary. Uh, that's, uh, that was um, immediately after William and Mary took the throne. Um, we see... Uh, what was called the Act of Toleration. It was the most significant religious uh, reform in England since their break from Roman Catholicism in the 1530s. So over a 100 years later, before Protestants had religious freedom, because of William and Mary, it stated this, um, that it was an act for exempting their majesty's Protestant subjects dissenting from the Church of England from the penalties of certain laws. So, uh, they could dissent from the Church of England and not be held liable under the law at that point. Uh, The same year the Act of Toleration was passed by the Parliament, the Second London Baptist Confession was reissued with the names of 37 pastors and, um, and also their churches now openly held to that Confession of Faith. Now, since 1689... The second London Baptist Confession has been the primary confession of faith for Baptists who hold to Reformed covenant theology such as ourselves. The alternative title over the next 200 years was the Old London Confession. Sometimes you'll read it as, uh, as that. In 1744, 
It was adopted by the Calvinistic Baptists of North America under the name the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Same confession, uh, but they're Americans and they needed to make it their own, I guess. Um, In 1855, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had, uh, had only been the pastor of New Park Street Chapel in London for a few months. He determined that there was a necessity for the reissuing of the 1689 Confession. So in the building of uh, later, they moved from there to the London Tabernacle because the church had just exploded and they needed to build a large uh, place for them to gather. Uh, Spurgeon saw to it that a copy of the Second London Baptist Confession was placed in the cornerstone of the church building when it was being built. Um, On this doctrine, he was saying that this church will be built. And even today, um, uh, that... uh, the London Tabernacle remains a Reformed Baptist church that holds to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Um, I, not superstitiously because that's in the cornerstone, but it's just in London, that's kind of amazing when you kind of look at what's happened to the church there. Um, and it's still a thriving congregation. Um, Spurgeon's adherence to London Baptist Confession gave it sort of a new lease on life because uh, after a while it was kind of fading. Um, and even since then, there have been several reprint, reprints, 1855, 1958, and then several times in the 60s and 70s. And um, if you, you have your leather one, you didn't bring it, you have yours, Ben, hold that up. Yeah, those, uh, those were just printed by our association uh, two years ago um, because we want to reissue again the Confession of Faith, uh, and this time it contains the Baptist Catechism as well. Um, the last several years, there's been an explosion of churches that hold to the 1689, um, not just in the United States, but there are, uh, there's a, a Reformed Baptist Association in Italy. Uh, there's a growing association in parts of Africa. Um, you see in, um, there's some in Spain, uh, several of the, uh, several South American um, countries, uh, there are these growing uh, Reformed Baptist works. There's one in Japan. We just prayed for them tonight. There's one in uh, uh, Jamaica. So you see uh, that they're all adhering to the 1689, which is a beautiful thing because it keeps us all on the same plane with brothers and sisters around the world. We don't all have our own separate, here's what we believe, here's what we believe. We all get to, um, we can go generally a lot of different places in the world and find other churches that will be just like ours in a lot of ways. It's just a wonderful thing. Um, now, there are many who, and I'll address this and we'll be done. Um, there are many today who believe that the 1689 Confession needs to be updated to include doctrinal or social issues relevant to the church today that were not really an issue in the 1600s. Um, So, you know, there's good reasons for and against that. I don't really know what I believe about that. (laughs) Um, But there are some who would just like to make minor adjustments to the confession where there's agreement uh, that the confession does display some inaccuracies. Um, the main one being the Pope being the Antichrist as opposed to an Antichrist. That's the main one. Um, that If we just change that one word, then we'd love the whole thing um, for the most part. Um, so anyway, we'll deal with some of those nuances as we go through the confession. So I hope you're interested in the history of that and that was helpful and meaningful and you don't feel like you wasted your time tonight. Um, I promise next... We're meeting, yeah, we're meeting next, wait, is next Wednesday the 4th? We're meeting at the Reed's house next week um, for a 4th of July party. So the following Wednesday, I promise we'll get into chapter 2 and paragraph 1 of the confession. So any thoughts or questions uh, tonight as we uh, close up? That's exactly it, yeah. Their, Their whole desire was to disassociate completely from anything having to do with England because everything was tied to the Church of England and Parliament and everything else. So they wanted to do away with it completely. Yeah. You also see the Charleston Confession, uh, same thing. Uh, but each region was calling it something else because they, uh, they, wanted to, um, they wanted to identify separate from England. New Hampshire Confession is more closely aligned with the first London Baptist Confession. 
um, why those who are not strong adherents to the moral law hold to that generally today. Any other questions? I will take my notes on all of this and I'll try to compile them into something that I can um, put on our website if you want to download and read some of these things. Um, I know kind of a shotgun blast of church history takes a little bit more to uh, digest, but um, it's just a, a bit of an overview, and hopefully as we go along, you can be thinking in terms of what's going on in the church and these various nuances of the different streams of Christian belief at the time that will really help us to to get a good read on what's going on in the confession. So, good deal. All right, well, um, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thanks so much for our time tonight. We're so uh, very grateful that you have given us this place and this opportunity. And Lord, as I as I think about all of uh, all of those who have gone before us in the faith, whose shoulders we stand on in in the faith of um, of the Bible, um, Lord, how thankful I am for their uh, commitment to the gospel. Lord, many of these men, names I've mentioned tonight and many others whose names appear only on the pages of history, Lord, um, I consider myself uh, to to never be near where they are in terms of holiness and their understanding of the scriptures and their... Um, their ability to uh, to make so very clear the teaching of the Scripture. Lord, we are uh, very much indebted to these men, um, men of uh, men of whom we uh, we should uh, we should recognize uh, that you used in a very powerful way uh, in their day. Um, that their uh, the lasting implications of what they did is still carrying on this many years later. And Lord, we do recognize, though, that the best of men are men at best and uh, that they had their flaws and they had their own sins to deal with. Um, And yet, Lord, we honor and recognize them as our brothers in Christ and those who who can teach us a great deal and that we can be very thankful for. Lord, I consider all the persecution they endured in order to bring about uh, the truth of our confession that we have and, and cherish and love today. I thank you, Lord, that you cause them to persevere, that we can have uh, this precious truth um, to learn and to teach and to grow upon uh, today in the church. Lord, we pray that uh, your people all throughout the world uh, would see the significance and the beauty and the truth contained within all of these confessions that were mentioned tonight. And uh, in doing so, Lord, that you would bring about a, uh, a fresh understanding of, uh, of the old truths of the Bible a reminder that uh, you do not call us to um, to new inventions and new schemes. You don't call us to um, uh, to quirks and to uh, creative new ways of um, of doing something different. Uh, but that you call us, Lord, to uh, proclaim the old truth of the gospel of Christ and Him crucified, uh, that men may live. And so I pray, God, that you would do that work. And through it, you'd be glorified and your people would be strengthened and nourished and discipled into uh, strong, faithful believers of the cross. So, Lord, thanks for tonight and thanks for all that you've given us uh, throughout uh, the history of the church for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.